There's your warrant. Okay. Thank you. Good morning. It's an honor and privilege to be here with you today. I pray the time we spend together will glorify God and be a blessing to us. Uh, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Uh, dear Lord, I would like to thank you for the freedom you have given us to meet together and to openly worship you. It is an amazing gift that you have given us that we can come together to hear the scriptures preached and to praise you in song. I pray that you will give me the words to say and anything that does not glorify you will fall upon deaf ears. For those who do know you, I pray that you use today's sermon to build them up in the faith and help them to see how they can have assurance of salvation. The very fact that we can't have assurance displays your loving kindness to us. For those of you who don't know you, I pray that you are opening their ears and their hearts to bring them to a saving knowledge of your son, Jesus Christ. We pray this in the name of your son. Amen. Simul justus et peccator is an old Latin phrase that was coined by Martin Luther. It helps explain this strange paradox that believers find themselves in, where we're justified or declared righteous, but at the same time, we're still sinners. This phrase captures the internal conflict we feel when we know we are saved, but we find ourselves doing the things we do not want to do. We know that sin no longer has a power over us, but we find ourselves just continuing to sin over and over again. We try to resist temptation, but sometimes we give in to those sinful desires. And let's be honest, often the battle against sin just seems too hard. At times, it feels like we're taking one step forward and two steps back. And sometimes we ask ourselves, how can I be a Christian and do what I just did? When that happens, the assurance of our salvation is shattered and we start to feel lost and hopeless. At times like this, we can go to 1 John for comfort. For many of us, 1 John is a book of the Bible that you tell somebody to go to, to examine themselves, to see if they're in the faith. It is great for that, and I've used it that way myself. But unfortunately, it has earned this reputation of being a hard-hitting book that is absent of all love and compassion. But in reality, it is very comforting for Christians who are doubting their salvation and when it feels like the fight against sin is just too hard. Please open your Bibles to 1 John chapter 2. We're going to focus on the first two verses today, but we're going to read the first six to get us our immediate context. My little children, I'm writing these things to you so you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. And by this we know that we have come to know him, if we keep his commandments. Whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments, is a liar, and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word in him, truly the love of God is perfected. By this we know that we are in him. Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. John wrote this letter towards the end of the first century when he was a very old man. And the church was being infiltrated by false teachers who were spreading what is known as the Gnostic heresy. 
Gnostics believe that all physical things are evil, but the spiritual things were good. They believe that the person's spirit was basically trapped in their physical bodies and had such a low view of anything that's physical, they thought what they did really did not affect their spirit. As a result, they would often live in wanton or open sin. While there are many different versions of this heresy, the most common form denies that Jesus had a physical body and that he would have a physical return. With that background in mind, you can understand why 1 John focuses so heavily on the humanity of Christ and how he provides atonement for our sins. By having a good answer of who Jesus Christ is and the work he does will help you have assurance during those dark nights of the soul when you so desperately need it. In fact, it is impossible to have any real assurance without it. But at this time, you might be asking yourself, is it even possible to have assurance? And the answer is yes. In fact, God wants you to have assurance. He does not want you living your life like you're on some type of roller coaster where you think you're saved one day and lost the next. But how do we know that? The Holy Spirit inspired John to write in 1 John 5.13, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God so that you may know that you have eternal life. If you only remember two things from the sermon today, remember this. First, the best evidence that you have eternal life is that there's an increasing desire to obey God's law and that your life is marked by increasing obedience to it. There might be some deep valleys, but the overall direction of your life will show the work of the Holy Spirit in you as you're transformed more and more into the likeness of Jesus Christ. And second, your assurance is not based upon your works, but on the person and work of Jesus Christ. Those two statements may seem like they're at odds with each other, but they're not. With the help of the Holy Spirit, I pray that you will see how these two statements complement each other perfectly. Today we're going to examine 1 John 2, 1-2, to to see how it gives you assurance of your salvation, even during those times when you think you've lost it or never had it in the first place. We'll examine these two verses in three headings, sin prohibited, sin committed, and sin provided for. First, let's look at sin prohibited. 1 John 2.1 states, My little children, I'm writing these things to you so you may not sin. The Apostle John begins this section with, with the phrase, My little children. This greeting tells us two things that are essential to properly understanding what follows. First, he's writing to believers who he sees as his spiritual children in the faith. And second, it sets the tone for the rest of the letter. While it is very polemical and theological, it was written from the heart of a pastor. It was written from the perspective of an elderly father who's trying to instruct, build up, and correct his beloved children. He loved his children. He did not just want them to live in a less sinful way. He wanted to help them be more like Jesus Christ. He is also writing as someone who experienced the transformational power of the gospel in his own life. He went from being the son of thunder, known for his anger, to be known as the apostle of love. That is the power of the gospel. It takes a man enslaved to sin and sets him free. It not only sets him free, 
but makes him a new creation in Christ. And the evidence of that transformation is a changed life. John's life was truly transformed by the gospel. When he wrote, My little children, I'm writing these things to you so you may not sin. What are these things he is referring to? Some interpreters have limited it to the first chapter of John's letter. Some said maybe it's just the rest of chapter 2. I put myself along with the majority of the commentators who thinks it encompasses the entire letter of 1 John. And it does matter. Because when you're doubting your assurance, one of the best things you can do is read the entire letter of 1 John in one sitting as it was intended to be. What John says next is very challenging and convicting. I am writing these things to you so you may not sin. First, what is sin? It's a word we often throw around, but it's so often misunderstood. When I first started doing biblical counseling, I was shocked to see how many professing Christians did not take killing sin in their life seriously and did not really understand what it was. John defines it for us in 1 John 3, 4. Everyone who makes a practice of sinning practices lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. In other words, it is a violation of God's moral law, which is best summarized in the Ten Commandments. But unfortunately, the concept of sin has been watered down in the modern church. The word sin is replaced with less offensive terms. Accidents, mistakes, missteps, examples of our brokenness. One preacher even referred to sin as an oopsie. Yes, a preacher who had the privilege of preaching God's word referred to the very thing that required Jesus Christ to die on the cross in order to save sinners as an oopsie. But well-meaning Christians often do the same thing to a lesser degree. We adjust our language and minimalize the seriousness of sin. Worry is turned to concern. Adultery becomes an affair. And we justify our lies by calling them white lies. When sin is taken so lightly, it is no wonder why we see so much sin in the professing church. When John wrote, I am writing these things to you so you may not sin, he is reminding you that you do not have a license to sin. Let me repeat that. John is reminding you that you do not have a license to sin. And it's repeated because one of the most abused verses in the Bible is Romans 6.14, where the Apostle Paul wrote, For sin will have no dominion over you, since you're not under the law, but under grace. Sadly, this beautiful verse that declares our freedom from sin is often twisted into somehow giving a professing believer the freedom to live however they want. If that is your view of sin, then I implore you to examine yourself to see if you're in the faith. Paul himself contradicted this idea just a few verses earlier in Romans 6.1 when he wrote, What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we, who died to sin, live in it? As a Christian, you're no longer under the law for salvation, but you're so under it as a role of life. Chapter 19, paragraph 6 of the 1689 London Baptist Confession clarifies our relationship to the law. In part, it reads, True believers are not under the law as a covenant of works to be justified or condemned by it. Yet it is very useful to, to them and others as a role of life that informs them of the will of God and their duty. It directs and obligates them 
to live according to its precepts. It also exposes the sinful corruption of their natures, hearts, and lives. As they examine themselves in the light of the law, they come to further conviction of, humiliation for, and hatred of sin. But make no mistake about it. When John wrote, I write these things to you so you may not sin, he is calling you to obedience to God's law. In John 14, 15, Jesus himself stated, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. He also warned us in John three thirty six, whoever believes in the Son has eternal life, but whoever does not obey the Son has not seen life, but the wrath of God remains on him. The Apostle John reinforced this point in 1 John 2, 3 through 6, where he wrote, And by this we know that we have come to know him, if we keep his commandments. Whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments, is a liar, and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word in him, truly the love of God is perfected. By this we know that we have come, we are in him. Whoever says he abides in him ought to to walk in the same way he walked. True Christians love God and sincerely desire to obey him. They do not see his law as a burden or something that is oppressive. They seek keeping his law as a joy and rejoice in it. Christians are given a new heart when they're saved. It is this new heart that gives them the new desires and new affections. They now desire to keep his commandments out of love for him. And they desire to be obedient to him out of love. And growing in holiness is evidence that you have been saved. However, you must be careful that you not turn your obedience into a work-based system of salvation, since you have been saved by grace through faith and not the result of works. You must also remember that works cannot save you, and you cannot even create the desire to obey God's commandments on your own. In his letter to the Philippians, the Apostle Paul reminds you that For it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Now let's move on to our second point, sin committed. After radically calling you to obedience to the law of God, John states, but if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. According to John MacArthur, a better translation of this verse would be, but if anyone does sin, and it will happen, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. He explains that the verb used in this verse conveys the strong probability of occurrence. The sin that John is referring to in this verse is not a pattern of sin in the believer's life, but an occurrence of sin. Also in his letter, John does use use the word sin to refer to a pattern or lifestyle of sin. However, the context of this verse clarifies that he's only talking about an occurrence of sin. This is vital to understand since a professing Christian who is trapped in a lifestyle of sin may be a false convert. True believers are no longer slaves to sin. They have been set free. They will sin, but their life will not be defined by it. They will be broken over their sin. A.W. Pink explains it this way. It is not the absence of sin, but the grieving over it which distinguishes the child of God from the empty professor. As a Christian, you have a new heart and new desires, but you will continue the fight against temptation on this side of heaven. Since you have a new heart, when you sin, it's not a mistake. 
and you do not fall into sin. You dive into it. I'm not going to sugarcoat it. When you commit a sin, it is a willful rebelling against God and his law. Yes, Christians will sin, but what matters is that they are fighting against it in the power of the Holy Spirit. And they're making it their daily practice to kill sin. John Owen reminds us to be killing sin or sin be killing you. God has given them the power to resist sin and promise to provide the way of escape so we can overcome any temptation or trial. The problem is that the Christians often depend on their own power to resist sin and do not take the way of escape that God promised us in 1 Corinthians 10.13. But sometimes that sin you're seeing in your life is actually evidence that you're growing in holiness. That may sound strange, but it's true. As you mature in your faith, your heart becomes more and more sensitive to sin. You start to feel convicted over things you never were convicted about before. It is as if God is pulling the curtain back a little bit further to expose some indwelling sin in your life so that it can be repented of and killed. For example, have you ever been watching your favorite TV show? You've been watching it for years, but, yeah. <laughs> but suddenly you've been convicted and stopped watching it. The language in the show hasn't changed. The content has not changed. It's the same show that's been promoting all the things that God hates for years. But what changed? You did. You matured in your walk in Christ and became more sensitive to sin and developed a strongest desire for holiness in your life. Let's move on to our third point. Sin provided for. After calling you to obedience and informing you that you will still sin, John tells you how your sins have been provided for. He's not telling you this in a holier-than-thou way or someone who reached a point where he no longer sins. How do we know this? Let me read you these verses again to see if you catch the transition in his language. My little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. He is a propitiation for our sins and not for ours only, but for the sins of the whole world. Did you catch it? Once he started talking about the advocate and propitiation, he starts to use we and our instead of you. He does this because he knows that even as an apostle of Christ, he still needs Jesus Christ to be his advocate and his propitiation. Christian, just like the apostle John, you will sin but you can still have assurance of your salvation because we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. The word advocate is translated from the Greek word parakletos. It most commonly refers to the Holy Spirit and is often translated as helper or comforter. However, in this verse, it refers to Jesus Christ in his role as the advocate. An advocate is someone summoned or called to another side to help or plead their case before a judge or a king. As the advocate, he continually intercedes for his people when they sin. According to Paul Washer, the truth of Christ's continuous intercession for us, for his people, does not mean that he is on his knees begging before the throne of God for mercy on their behalf. He intercedes as one seated at the very right hand of God, as the one who's omniscient 
and knows every need of his people, as one who has all the authority to speak on their behalf, and as one who annuls every accusation against them. To understand the work of Jesus Christ as the advocate, commentators often use the imagery of the cosmic courtroom, where the father is the judge, the devil is the prosecutor, who accuses God's children, and we are the defendant. And Jesus Christ is your defense attorney, who's never lost a case and never will. He's not going to try to get you off on a technicality or claim your innocence. You are guilty. There's no question about it. You are guilty. He is not going to plead, get a plea bargain for you and attempt to get you a lighter sentence. He is going to proclaim your guilt, but he is going to declare that the penalty of your sins has already been paid because he paid for it. And he has the scars on his hands and feet to prove it. When he hung on the cross, he declared that his work in paying the penalty of your sin is finished. This imagery of the courtroom goes a long way in helping us understand his work as our advocate. However, we must be careful that we do not take it to the point where we pit the father against his son. The work of Jesus Christ as your advocate is actually the glorious outworking of the covenant of redemption. The covenant of redemption is where, before time began, the father appointed the son to become incarnate, suffer and die as a federal head or representative of mankind to make atonement for their sin. In return, the Father promised to raise Christ from the dead, to glorify him, and to save his elect people. In verse 1, John identified our advocate as Jesus Christ the righteous. Jesus Christ is the Son of God, the second person of the Trinity, who became incarnate for us. He is fully God and fully man. But according to Colossians 1.16, For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth visible and indivisible, were thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. Think about it. Jesus Christ created the trees that were used to build the cross that he hung on. He created the thorns that were twisted into a crown and placed on his head, causing those sharp thorns to pierce his skin. He created the very people who in a matter of a few short days went from singing Hosanna to screaming crucify him. And none of that occurred by chance or took him by surprise. It was all part of the preordained plan that was established during the covenant of redemption where he saves his people from their sins. Our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, accomplished for you what you can never do on your own. He lived the life in perfect obedience to God's law and thought and deed. He kept each and every one of the Ten Commandments perfectly. He is the spotless lamb that was offered up for us that we only saw in types and shadows in the Old Testament sacrifices. Yet, since he was also fully man, he was tempted in every way that we are, but was without sin. So he can sympathize with you when you're tempted and in your sufferings. So how can Jesus Christ the righteous atone for your sins? John informs us in verse 2. He is the propitiation for our sins, but not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. Propitiation means to appease or to satisfy. It is translated as atoning sacrifice in some of the more modern Bible translations. When Jesus died on your behalf, he offered himself as the atoning sacrifice to satisfy God's demand for justice and appease God's holy wrath against sin. 
You can know that you have the absolute, you can know with absolute confidence that the Father accepted his son's sacrifice as payment in full because he raised Jesus Christ from the dead. Let that sink in. If you're a believer, Jesus Christ bore the full wrath of God that you deserve to bear for every one of your sins, past, present, and future. He was the perfect spotless lamb that was sacrificed for you for the full atonement of your sins. In the garden, when Jesus prayed to the Father, Father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. He knew what was in the cup and what awaited him. The full wrath of God was in the cup. And he drank it for you. Every last drop. He did it for you. Another amazing thing is that this sacrifice only needed to be made once. Hebrews 10, 11 through 13 says, And every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But when Christ offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. How can sacrifice of one man pay the penalty for all the sins of all of God's people? It is because of his infinite worth that he was able to atone for the sins of all those who repent and believe. It is because Jesus Christ the righteous and his perfect propitiation that you can have assurance of your salvation when you sin because he already atoned for it. That lie you told yesterday, he atoned for it. That rude comment you make to your spouse on the way to church this morning, he already atoned for it. That man you murdered in your heart several times because he was driving too slow in the fast lane, he atoned for it. That website you visited after your spouse went to bed, he atoned for it. Christian, that is why you can have assurance of your salvation when you sin. Jesus Christ has made full atonement for all of your sins and set you free. And that brings us to the most controversial part of these two verses. In verse 2, John wrote, He is the propitiation for our sins, but not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. When John refers to the world, does that mean every single person that's ever lived? No. He is referring to people from all nations throughout history. We see a clearer picture of this in Revelation 7, verses 9 through 10, where John wrote, After this I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number, from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes, with palm branches in their hands, crying out in a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. I know that some of you may want to jump out of your seat and scream, No, world means the whole world. But the context of this verse does not allow that interpretation. Notice it says, Jesus Christ is the propitiation for our sins and the sins of the whole world. If this, if world in this verse meant every person who ever lived, that means every person who ever lived would be saved. And we know that's not what Scripture teaches us when we look at Scripture as a whole. We also know that Jesus Christ said the way to salvation is narrow and few find it. Also, the word world is used in many different ways throughout Scripture. For example, in Luke 2, verse 1, it says, In those days the decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. 
Was every single person in the entire world required to be registered? That include the people living in what would eventually become the United States? No. This verse referred to anyone who lived in the area that was under control of the Roman Empire. But before we move on to application, let's read our text one last time. My little children, I'm writing these things to you so you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins, for not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. Christian, I'm going to speak to you first. You can't have assurance of your salvation because Jesus Christ is your advocate and your propitiation. Let's briefly look at five things that you can do when you lack the assurance of your salvation. First, preach the gospel to yourself daily. The gospel is not something that you preach an unbeliever to, it's not only something you preach an unbeliever to get them saved. It is much more than that. It is the most important message that a believer and an unbeliever can hear. When you feel like you're winning the battle against sin in your life, preaching the gospel to yourself daily will humble you. It will remind you that you're not winning the battle on your own and it will help kill the sin of pride that is setting you up for a great fall. It will remind you of the great mercy of God and because you focus on the gospel, you'll grow in your love for him. As your love grows, your life will be transformed more and more into the likeness of Jesus Christ. And as a result, you have assurance of your salvation. But when you do sin, preach the gospel to yourself. Confess your sin and repent. When your sins are forgiven, they are removed from you as far as the east is from the west. Our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ the righteous, is your advocate and your propitiation. Since he already paid the penalty for your sins, you do not have to continually beat yourself up or wallow in the guilt over them. Second, if you have been saved, you will persevere in the faith. When you repent and believe, your sins were placed on Jesus Christ and he paid the penalty for them. His perfect obedience to the law of God was applied to your account just as your sins were applied to his. Just as we were saved by Christ, for Christ, we were persevering in the faith by Christ and for Christ. Do not forget what Paul wrote to the Philippian church. And I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at that day of Jesus Christ. Third, when the burden of your sin just seems to be too much, run to the arms of our great Savior. In Matthew 11, 28-29, Jesus said, Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. Run to him, and he will give you rest that you so desperately need. Quit punishing yourself for your sins and quit trying to keep yourself saved. Find rest in his perfect obedience to the law of God and his sacrifice on the cross. And when you do so, you will find rest. Fourth, do not expect a perfect repentance. Repentance is a gift of God and you will grow in repentance as you grow in Christ. So many Christians repent of their sins only to turn around and worry that their sins have not been forgiven since they didn't repent enough, or maybe they didn't use the right words. They worry that, what happens if I forget to repent of something? Would I be under the wrath of God? 
But just remember, as a Christian, you will never experience the wrath of God since Jesus Christ experienced it for you. You can depend on the divine helper, the Holy Spirit, when you do not know what or how to pray. In Romans 8, 26-27, Paul wrote, Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. For we do not know what to pray for as we ought, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And he who searches hearts knows what is the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. But fifth, beware of excessive self-examination. This is a very common problem in the theological camp that many of us run in. We feed ourselves daily on a steady diet of sermons that focus on the need for self-examination and warnings of false conversions. We immerse ourselves in heavy books by the Puritans. All of the things are good, and we should feast upon them at times. But they cannot be the only spiritual food that we eat. If we overindulge in them, we can become obsessed with self-examination and see the slightest hint of sin in our lives as evidence that we're not saved. We look at mature Christians who have been walking with God far longer than we have and expect to have the same level of practical holiness in our lives. And we forget that sanctification is progressive. Morbid examination causes us to focus on Christ. I'm sorry, causes us to lose our focus on Christ as the source of our salvation. Just as bad, we become fruit inspectors who are obsessed with accusing other Christians of being false converts when we see even the slightest stumble in their walk. Self-examination is important as long as we balance it with a biblical view of assurance. But I also warn you, do not forget that the grace that God has shown you is not a license to sin. Guard your hearts and your lives. Do not make provision for the flesh. Out of love for your Savior, cut out anything in your life that causes you to stumble. Set up guideposts to keep you on the narrow path. Christian, as I mentioned in the beginning of this sermon, there are two things that I hope and pray that you remember. First, the best evidence that we have been saved is that there's an increasing desire to obey God's law and our lives are marked by increasing increasing obedience to it. There may be some deep valleys, but the overall direction of your life will show the work of the Holy Spirit in you as you transform more and more into the likeness of Jesus Christ. And second, Your assurance is not based upon your works, but on the person and work of Jesus Christ. Now to the unbeliever. All the comforts that were offered in this text are not for you, at least not at this moment. Jesus Christ is not your advocate. He is your judge. He did not propitiate for your sins. You will bear the full wrath of God in hell for violating his holy law for eternity. You have broken each and every one of his commandments. Judgment day is coming, and you're not promised tomorrow. Unless you repent of your sins and trust in Jesus Christ alone for your salvation, that is what awaits you. But today can be the day of your salvation. Repent and turn to Jesus Christ. Look to the cross and flee the wrath to come. For his, his word tells us that if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Then and only then will he be your advocate and your propitiation. What a glorious day it is when sinners find forgiveness at the cross of Christ. Let's close in prayer. I'd like to use a prayer from Jeremiah Burroughs that was found in the book P. 
Piercing Heaven, called I Am Forever Secure, as our closing prayer. Lord, today you've set before us your word as a glorious mystery, the righteousness of your Son that we do not know or care about before. We see now how happiness lies there no matter what happens to us in this world and how no matter what happens to our name and our worldly possessions, we are forever secure if we have Christ to clothe us. Lord, if righteousness does not prevail, then you would be honored more than ever. You would have, we would have joy in our hearts and we would be delivered from temptations that we encounter. And your saints would not suffer as they do. Amen.